Hi, this is Jason, lead pastor at Casper Alliance Church. Thanks for stopping by our weekly teaching podcast. Hey, we're beginning a new series, working through the story of Ruth. It's an Old Testament book. Uh, we're going to be in it for a few weeks, six or seven. Uh, we're looking forward to exploring what uh, the story of redemption, the story of family, the story of love. It's a great story um, about Ruth and uh, getting married to Boaz. So this is our first week. Hope you enjoy it. If you'd like to know more about Casper Alliance Church, you can check us out at casperchurch.com. We also have an app. You can go to your app store or Google Play store, search for Casper Alliance Church, look for the double C's and download it, and you'll be connected with us all the time. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. So before I begin with the actual sermon today, I'm going to introduce someone to you who's very special. If I walk over that way, it's really hinky. Who's very special to me. So... Mrs. Ayan, if you would join me, please. This is my wife, Beth. Most of you know her, but she's been in and out for a while because of COVID and uh, a bunch of other stuff. But, you know, Jason has been talking over the last year about we are a body of stories. And we all have something, and we all have things that we've done and gone through and all that kind of stuff. And Beth has a story she wants to share. And I asked her to do it today, um, so y'all wouldn't have to listen to me talk as long as part of it. But it's an amazing story, so go. Okay, great. Good morning. I'm so happy to be back with you guys. I've missed my family, and um, so it's just happy to be back. Um, just so you know, I'm going to put these glasses on. I've been having cataract surgery. Tomorrow's my second one. So I have one good eye, one bad eye. But in order to read my notes, I have to put on these glasses that have one lens. So just so you know, there's no lens in this, but there's a lens in this. But it's the only way I can sort of read and keep track of what I'm talking about. Um, so anyway, um, I just really, God has really put on my heart to share this story with you that um, happened to me. Oh, back in August, and um, it really has nothing to do with cancer, for those of you that know me, which is probably really strange for you, <laughs> but it has nothing to do with that, really. There is a part in there, but uh, not much. Anyways, um, for those of you that don't know me, and some of you that do, you may not know that I was adopted. I was adopted in 1968, um, when I was about six weeks old. I grew up in Denver. And that's where my parents adopted me. Um, in 1968, abortion was illegal. And so, um, not that it wasn't happening. So I'm very grateful to have my life um, uh, in 1968 and was given up for adoption. Um, so there were a lot of babies to adopt back then. And so my mom and dad adopted me um, from the state of Colorado when I was six weeks old. And before that, I was in foster care. My foster family was not the greatest foster family. I was really sick when I uh, finally made it to my parents at about six weeks old. Um, they just let me, they adopted, or foster care, took a lot of foster kids in and just let me lay. And so I was pretty sick by the time my um, parents adopted me. The process for adoption was really different back then. Um, <laughs> Basically, they paid $12 for the court fee, and they had one home visit. And so the one home visit was to make sure I had a place to sleep. And my parents put up um, just a temporary wall in their house so that I had sort of a bedroom. And that was 
that satisfied it. So anyway, $12 is what I cost. Um, and so that was pretty awesome. Um, my brother was also adopted two years later from a different family. Um, and so we both had very different, um, we, we have very different adoption stories if he was to tell his. Um, and I'll get into that a little bit later. My parents never really sat us down and said, hey, you were adopted. They just talked about it all the time around us. And so we just always knew that we were adopted. Um, but they did tell me, they said, you know, your birth mom loved you so much that she knew she could not take care of you to the best of her ability. So she gave you up for adoption. So I grew up loving my birth mom, even though I had no idea who she was. Back in 1968, they closed, um, the, the adoptions were closed. And so there was no way to find out um, really who the, your adoptive parents were, unless you go through a big, big rigmarole. But anyway, um, so I appreciated that about my parents, that they um, were able to impart to me that, um, that my mom loved me so much that she was able to do this for me. So. Uh, my parents became Christians when I was very young. Um, I remember sitting as a little girl on the staircase, um, listening to them at a Bible study. And just a side note, I have to tell you a little bit about this Bible study that they were in. Um, it was led by a man who um, was writing a Bible study for the group called the Navigators. And I don't know how many of you know who the Navigators are. They are a ministry for college kids mostly and military people. Um, and uh, this man was writing a Bible study, and he needed a pilot group to um, test it on. And so my parents and my aunt and uncle and a few other young couples were the test group, and none of them really knew Jesus at the time. So that was really cool because they all became Christians through this Bible study. The cool thing about that is then 45 years later, both of our children have worked full-time for the Navigators. And right now we have a son and daughter-in-law who still work full-time for the Navigators, which is really cool. It's such a legacy um, that God has provided in our family, which is amazing. And also, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of the topical memory system, and it's just these little cards where you learn Bible verses. That's still in, in um, use today, and that was one of the things he was developing back then. Sorry, my voice is really nervous. So anyway, so um, I just wanted to throw that in there. But that's how my parents became Christians. And um, they led, us, led me to the Lord when I was such a young child. Um, and I knew that my security was in Jesus, even as a young child. Not in my relationships with people. Um, not in the world around me. The things that I, that I owned. That kind of thing. My brother struggled with that. He thought that he deserved um, a richer life. He thought he deserved um, fancier parents, I guess. Um, and so he did look for his biological parents um, later on and didn't find that in them. He did not find security in them. He um, just really has struggled um, to find Jesus in his life. But anyway, um, um, 
I had a wonderful and happy growing up years. Um, I was provided for. I was dearly loved. Um, we weren't perfect, of course, but I never longed for a different life, and I never really thought about looking for my birth parents. It just wasn't a thing. I, I had my parents, and so um, that was not a thing for me that I really wanted to do. Um, but as I got older, um, people kept saying, well, you need to. You need to find your parents, because what if they don't know Jesus, and that you could be the one to, to lead them to the Lord? And to my shame, <laughs> that made me even more scared. Um, was to think about, oh, I've got to find these people, and then I've got to witness to them, and then they have to come to know Jesus, you know, and that was just um, too scary for me at the time. Um, so then, when I was in 1997, I was 29 years old, so now you can figure out how old I am, but um, I had a five-year-old and a three-year-old at the time, and I was di diagnosed with a rare and curable terminal blood cancer. Um, and I was given two to three years to live. During that time, the doctors were told um, me, you need to find your birth parents. We have no um, information about this cancer. We don't have any idea how it starts, what causes it, whatever. And so we would really like you to find your birth parents so we could, you know, find out what their deal is and get more information about this. And I was like, um, are you kidding me? You want me to... <laughs> find these people and say, hi, I'm your long-lost daughter, and I have this incurable disease that I'm going to die within two to three years. Um, I didn't think that was fair to, um, to my birth parents. So I just didn't think about it then for a long time. Um, and funny how it's 23 years later, just so you know, so um, I'm doing, doing a lot better. Still, still have that cancer, but... Um, lived a long time with it. Anyway, um, so we decided about three or four years ago that we would, we were just kind of interested in what my um, ethnic background was, um, where my ancestors came from, because a lot of doctors, this is really strange because you're all looking at me right now, but a lot of doctors thought that I had African-American blood in me. And so I was really interested in finding out if that was true, because the cancer that I have um, is most prevalent in African Americans. Um, I had the certain things that have to do with my teeth. They're like, oh, we only see this in African Americans. And so I was like, okay, so maybe I have African American blood. So we went and um, did the ancestry DNA test where you spit in a tube and send it in. And um, it came back, no African American genes. Shocking, I know because I'm as white as white can be. But anyway, um, it just gave us a little bit of information, and that was good. And it, what, I don't know if the, some of you know, but it will match you up with people who could possibly be like your first cousin, your second cousin, um, those kind of things. And, and it matched me up with a couple of people like that, first, one first cousin, a couple of second cousins. But I didn't really feel like I should contact them because... I thought, well, my mom knows she had me, but does my dad know that I even exist? And so if these people are related to my dad, it could cause a whole bunch of problems within their family. So I thought, I'm just not going to contact these people. So we just let it go. And about uh, up until, so that was about three, three and a half years probably, um, 
we were just sitting out on our back porch in August, and Mark just happened to think, I wonder if there's any new stuff on ancestry DNA. And so he went on to the website, and he just sat there and he handed me the phone. <laughs> and I um, looked at it and just immediately started bawling my eyes out because there was a message on there from a woman that was saying that she was my birth mom. And there was a 100% DNA match. And so I just started crying. I was 52 years old, at the t 51, I guess, at the time. 51, yeah. And, I mean, I thought this is, I would go the rest of my life without finding out who this woman was. I, you know, I've lived um, half my life, hopefully. <laughs> and um, anyway, so she messaged me and said, I would like to get to know you. I'd like to contact you. Is that okay? And so I was like, okay, here we go. And so um, she contacted us through email, and we emailed back and forth. And I found out that I have a half-brother and a half-sister. And um, there's a lot of other crazy stories that go along with that that I won't share today. But um, uh, they grew up in Denver, the same place I grew up, very close to where, we, where I was. And um, it's just amazing to think that we kind of lived parallel lives that whole time and never knew each other. But anyway, so... Um, her name is Linda. So Linda asked if we could talk on the phone. So a few nights later, um, she called me, and it was really scary. <laughs> um, but it was just so good to hear her voice and, and amazing to, to get to talk to her. But the thing was is she shared her life story with me a little bit. And, man, it was hard. And a lot of really um, difficult things. And I started to feel like she's going to ask me to, to share my story in just a couple minutes. And I'm going to have to tell her about the wonderful things that um, I've, I've lived through through my life. Happiness and joy and um, just wonderful things. And, uh, the, 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 and that my parents taught me about Jesus and that I love Jesus. And all these things that, that because of her sacrifice... Um, I was able to live. And anyway, so she handed it over to me to tell my story. And so I was able to tell her what God had done in my life in the past 51 years that she didn't know about. And I just wanted her to know, above all things, if nothing else came from this situation, was that because of what she had done, I was able to have this life. And because of the sacrifice that she made, I was able to have my kids and grow up and know Jesus. And, um, and all of those things are just who make me who I am. But because of her and her sacrifice, that's what um, has happened. And anyway, so she cried. And she was so thankful. And I told her about how my mom taught us to love her. Um, and so that she knew that um, I didn't feel bad. I wasn't angry at her. I knew she did it out of sacrificial love, and that to her was just um, such an amazing, amazing thing. So anyway, um, we're, I'm meeting her for the first time at the, on Memorial Day, so if you guys are thinking about us and um, want to pray about that, my brother is flying out from um, Florida with his whole family, and my new sister lives in Denver, so we're all meeting in Denver at my adoptive mom's house. 
and praise the Lord for her that she is willing to to be a part of all of that. So it's pretty special. So anyway, so um, that's really exciting. And um, I just wanted to share that story with you that it's pretty, pretty cool. So thank you. So if any of you guys out there are wondering what it's like to have two mothers-in-law, <laughs> I will let you know in June. So... No, it we had it. It was a bit of a crazy ride, and uh, yeah, um, that's been what's going on. So, uh, but let's let's take some time to look at the word now. Um, we are just beginning um, an eight-part series on the Book of Ruth, and since Jason is gone, he let me kick it off, and I. You know, the, the temptation, and I told him this the other day, I said the temptation is to try and set it up in such a way that he has to try and salvage it for the next seven weeks. <laughs> and so my, my proposal was that I could tell everybody that Naomi actually came from another planet to <laughs> Earth, but I decided to not do that. So we're going to look at the book of Ruth. Um, I just want to say as we start, you know, as you're reading through the Bible, if you start in Genesis and you do a straight read-through, when you get to Ruth, it's a bit of a relief because you've read through a lot of history, a lot of names, a lot of places that are unpronounceable, in, unpronounceable, um, just a lot of stuff. And then you get to Ruth and you're like, oh, okay, I can read this and I can kind of understand this. And so it's, 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 fairly, it's fairly easy. But as, a, as, a, um, as an introduction, what I want to point out is that, you know, the book of Ruth, why I love the book of Ruth is it's a story of what God was doing in a life. While all this other crazy stuff is going on around her, or them, we'll say them, all this crazy stuff is going on, and God is working in this, these few people's lives to accomplish his will and to um, do what he wants to do. So today, I'm going to do three things, and I was going to have Katie Thorne come up, but she left. She ran out of here, didn't she? I warned her. I said, okay, I'm going to have you come up and explain some things about Charlotte's Web. <laughs> because she had my wife as a third grade teacher. And they read Charlotte's Web. And I used to help her uh, grade papers. And I knew that there was one thing that I would teach whenever they would read a novel was that the kids needed to know the characters, the setting, and the plot. And so my introduction to you today of, for Ruth is going to be just kind of a quick character, setting, and plot of what's going on with Ruth. I had to ask my third grade teacher wife, how do you define plot? Because there's a lot of stuff that happens in Ruth. And her definition is that basically the plot is the problem that's being solved. And so we're going to see that there was a problem that was going on in these people's lives, <clears throat> and it was going to get solved. So if you have your Bible, I'm going to read Ruth chapter 1, the first 18 verses. I'm going to get my drink. 
Okay. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say, I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, No more. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you for this story. I thank you for these people, and I pray now that as we take a couple minutes and look at their life, just show us what you're doing and what you mean in their lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so the book of Ruth, pretty straightforward. When you start looking at characters, you've got Naomi and Ruth and Orpah, her daughters-in-law. And then there's some men. But they all die in like the first five verses. So far, there's one other guy you're going to get introduced to a little later on in the story, but he doesn't come in here. His name is Boaz, and um, I'll spoil a little bit about him later. But so, so we basically, what we have here is we have Naomi and her two daughters-in-law, and, and that's who the story centers around, and that's who we're talking about today. And so when we start talking about the setting, you know, there's two things. There's when... And there's where. When I start talking about setting, the when, the only thing we really know is in the days when the judges ruled. So the book of Judges is the book right before here. When the judges ruled is about 300 years. 
we don't necessarily know exactly when in that cycle Ruth happened. You can guess some things because of some things you find out later on. Oh, Katie's back. You want to come talk about setting? No? Okay. We can talk about some things that were going on. We can talk about some genealogy that, will, that kind of helps place it a little bit, but really no one Really, no one knows exactly when Ruth was written. Uh, the thing about Judges, if you read the book of Judges, it's a cycle. And this cycle went on in Israel for 300 years, and it's basically the cycle says, Israel does evil, Israel gets put into the hands of their enemy, they cry out to God, God raises up a leader, turn the page, the leader defeats the enemy, and then peace is regained, and everyone follows God. And then they start over again. And they just keep doing this cycle over and over and over again under different leaders and different enemies. I think we could probably pin some of the time down because I feel like this was during one of the peaceful eras because we hear that Naomi was going back to her homeland. Um, and I think that if it was still a bunch of turmoil and they were in captivity, eh, probably not. So, you know, you can, probably, you can probably break it down into one of those periods of time, but we don't know necessarily when. Now, the where. They were in Moab. There are some people on this side of the sanctuary who were in Moab last week. It was a different Moab. They were in Utah. But, um, but they're in the book of Moab, and I, I, I want to explain a couple things about Moab because it comes into play later. And we're going to do a quick, quick Bible history. Um, in Genesis 19, there's a story. Um, immediately following the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, Lot and his daughters and his wife are walking out, and Lot's wife turns around and turns into a pillar of salt, right? We all know that story. <clears throat> so, now Lot went up out of Zor and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zor, so he lived in a cave with his two daughters, and the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there's not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve offering, offspring from our father. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but the oldest daughter became the father of Moab through this whole situation. And so that's where... That's where the Moabites came from, and their land came to be Moab. Another fun little section of Scripture that is really long, and I'm not going to read all of it, but Numbers chapter 22, if you're writing stuff down, 22 through 25-ish. This is a great story. Well, this is a weird story and a great story. This is a story, have you ever heard of Balaam and his donkey? So there's a talking donkey in the Bible, and it's in this passage. So if you haven't read it, I strongly encourage you to read it. 
But what's going on here basically is that Israel is wandering this way, and Moab is across the way, and Moab is kind of panicking because um, basically it says they cover the land. So, so Moab calls a guy named Balaam to come and curse the Israelites. Well, Balaam won't do it, and then he goes to do it, and the donkey won't let him, and the angel, and there's a whole thing. But basically, you know, we see here that Moab does not like Israel, is basically what we're trying to get out of this point. They do not get along. And then, if you go further along, man, and I'm zipping through the Old Testament here, this is the fastest you will ever get the Old Testament in this church, I can almost guarantee it. <clears throat> Deuteronomy chapter 23. Verse 3. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever, because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, the guy with the donkey, from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loved you. So God says, even in Deuteronomy, have nothing to do with the Moabites. They are not my people. So, so Moab was not a place of blessing for the Israelite nation. Moab was kind of a place that we're not sure why Naomi and her husband went there in the first place. Of all the places they could pick, they picked Moab. So the plot of this story now at this point becomes this conversation and this relationship between Naomi and essentially her daughter-in-law Ruth. Um, her other daughter-in-law, Orpah, which I've always heard that Oprah Winfrey was supposed to be named Orpah, but her mother didn't spell it right, so she ended up Oprah. So there's your, there's your fun Oprah, Orpah fact for the day. Um, so, so what we see here, <clears throat> Naomi and her husband moved to Moab. The, the, kids, the boys grow up. They marry Moabites, which God doesn't like necessarily, but Naomi seemed to be fine with it. Then all the guys die, and so it's Naomi and her daughters-in-law. Naomi's like, I'm hiking back to, to Bethlehem, basically. And their daughters-in-law are like, well, we'll go with you. And she's like, I'm not going to have more sons. You should just You should go back to your family. So what's interesting to me, and I read some stuff, and I think in my own mind I had always assumed, you know, Naomi was like this big person of faith and we should all do what she was doing. As I read through this, not so much. You know, Naomi was like, hey, girls, go back to your old gods. Go back to your old ways. I'm not going to teach you anything about God. Because it's just easier, I'm going to go back. Um, Naomi really did not even understand that God had a loving side. You know, at one point she states, basically, God's out to get me. And you guys don't want to have anything to do with that. So, 
Orpah goes back. Um, Ruth says, I'm going to follow you. There, there's some, some commentaries out there that will tell you that, that Naomi basically reflected the health of the people of Israel. That how Naomi thought is kind of how most of the people of Israel thought. That we're just going to kind of do our own thing, and we're going to wander where we think it makes sense, and we're just going to be happy with that. So, God obviously had a better plan, and a different plan, for sure. Um, you know, we read in Deuteronomy, have nothing to do with the Moabites. And what does God do? He reaches down and says, this Moabite woman right here, she's the one I want to accomplish these amazing things in the world. What's interesting is, in order for Ruth to be able to do this, she essentially entered into the Abrahamic covenant. Does everyone remember the Abrahamic covenant? We talked about it several months ago here. Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's what Ruth did. She left her people, she left her place, and she actually, you know, she says the words. Where you go, I will go, your God will be my God. Where you live, I will live. Where you die, I will die. And she essentially said, you know what? I'm going to enter this covenant with you, and by doing that, I'm entering that covenant with God, and I am becoming the vessel for what God wants to do through me and in my life. Um, What's interesting is, how in the world did Ruth know how to do this? I mean, clearly, her parents were Moabites, so they're not going to be like, let me tell you about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. She had none of that growing up. Naomi clearly hadn't said to her, hey, let me tell you about my God and the amazing thing he's done, blah, 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 because she's just been trying to convince her, hey, go back to your old old way, leave me alone, we're going to move on. Um, Romans chapter 2 is an interesting little passage, and I'm not going to spend a little time, but I'm going to point it out to you. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So God had placed this thing on Ruth's heart. She had the law on her heart, and she knew this is what I need to do. So Jason has said over and over and over again, and I completely agree, this book here, this is the story of Jesus, right? From page one to page, I don't know what my last page is, 1100 and something. 
Anyway, it's about Jesus. And so it's interesting that the time of the judges was going on, and there was a lot of turmoil, and there was a lot of stuff, but God was still working in individual lives, and Ruth is just one of those stories. I can tell you there's thousands of other stories that were happening in the Israelite nation around this time. We get this one, we get to share this one because this is the story of Jesus. Because, spoiler alert, Ruth is the great, great, great something of Jesus. Through Boaz, who's actually the son of Rahab, which gets you into a whole other part of genealogy. But, but it's amazing that God was able to do that. So, I guess where I want to kind of sum up and kind of, I think, as we, as we go through Ruth, and Jason may totally blow this out of the water, I'll just say it now. For me, the thing to think about, kind of the overarching thing that we need to be thinking about is that um, even in the worst of times, God is still working. I, I got in trouble a little while ago because someone was saying to me, Ugh, 2020 was the worst possible year ever. I am so glad 2020 was over. It was just one nightmare from beginning to end. You know what? For me, in my life, my wife found her birth mother in the middle of 2020. My wife started treatment that helped her feel a whole lot better in the middle of 2020. We had a granddaughter, cutest baby ever, I'll throw it out there, born in the middle of 2020. And I guess I just want to encourage everybody that, you know, as we're reading this story, as we're reading through what's going on in Ruth over the next eight weeks or so, you know, be aware that it was a mess. Naomi was a mess. Israel was a mess. She's fighting, you know, and you feel bad for Naomi because, you know, her, her husband had died, her sons had died. She's trying to figure out her whole life. She's trying to move on. But in the middle of it, we're going to just see God continuing to work in the lives of these people in order to accomplish his will and do what he wants done. And he wants to do that with every single one of you. Whether you want it or not, and whether you think, you know what, I've screwed up so bad, there's nothing that God can use me for. Ruth was a Moabite woman. She was specifically forbidden from the assembly, in the Bible, for heaven's sakes. And God said, I can use that, and we're going to go on. So... Um, I'm going to close with this passage, and Pam said something this morning during worship team practice, and I was like, man, Pam, you're going to love my closing verse. So, Romans chapter 11, beginning with verse 33. <clears throat> oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been His counselor, or who has, given him a, who has given a gift to him 
that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever amen how unsearchable are his ways we don't know we can just see what's here and the mess and whatever it is god sees it all and god will use all of it for his glory if you stand please we're going to close um we're just going to sing the chorus of jesus paid it all and my friend davian is going to throw the words up there okay jesus paid it all all to him i owe sin had left the crimson stain he washed it white as snow amen everybody have a great week thank you